this last week, um, Tim Cole, who's been a brother who's worshipped with us, went to be with the Lord, we believe, by faith. Um, He died very suddenly downtown, no prior warning. And you heard me pray about it, but it is a good reminder to us that we need to pay attention to our souls and to the souls of those that are around us. Um, The church office is sent out and we'll be glad to give any of you the address of the Cole family. The funeral is up and report on, I think it's either tomorrow or Tuesday. But if you're interested in going, you can send an email and get that information if you forgot to know it. But do be in prayer for the Cole family at this time. Would you open your Bibles up to Galatians chapter 1? Galatians chapter 1, again this week we're going to turn to the first two verses, Galatians 1 verses 1 and 2. Let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. This is the word of the Lord. Now, although in the course of our study we will return to the themes that are in this book, um, it is good for us to remind ourselves as with any letter, who this letter is written to, who wrote the letter, uh, what the area that the people live in is, what their characteristics are. In other words, to realize that this letter has a context, and it comes out of that context. We have a tendency with Scripture to um, think that it's only written to us. Well, it is written to us. It has the ability to, to go across time and space and to speak to every one of us personally, every part of the book. I'm sure you've had the experience of opening the Bible and reading a text maybe you never remember you read before. This happens to me regularly. Or a text you've read so many times, but all of a sudden you hit a place in the text where even though the text's words are familiar, you never remember seeing that before. And so the Bible does speak to us. But we need to remember, in order to understand it properly for us, we need to remember the context in which it was written. And so even though it seems like sort of worthless work, too, uh, sort of too practical to give our time to in preaching, I do want us to lay a groundwork of understanding this context of the book of Galatians. Now, first of all, what's its context in the Bible? Uh, particularly in the New Testament and particularly the letters of the New Testament, not the Gospels, not the book of Acts, and particularly the letters of Paul. How does it relate to the other letters? Last week we saw that uh, there's no question that this book is a uh, book, a letter, that is written by the Apostle Paul. Um, You know that the world is filled with people who spend their lives uh, studying The New Testament is an academic pursuit, and you know that many of them argue that uh, about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that many of the things that are there didn't even happen. You've heard of the Jesus Seminar. It's been written up in the newspaper uh, many, many times, and 
there are a few places in the Gospels that are uh, believed by these scholars to be true records of Jesus Christ and actually what he said. Well, in the same way, in the letters the section of the New Testament, many of the letters, even though they clearly claim to be written by a particular person, the scholars will say, well, no, it wasn't really written by them. It was really written uh, by the church, and the church put their name to it because they thought that that would be a person who might have said that kind of thing. Well, no matter how often that's said about other books of the New Testament, it's never said about Galatians. Why? Well, because there's an urgency and an intensity and a personality and a rawness. Uh, I referred last week to, to the Galatians, book of Galatians being bloody. Uh, in other words, it just reeks of, it oozes the Apostle Paul. And everybody admits this. And everybody says, yes, this is clearly written by Paul. So here is a book written by the Apostle Paul. Um, and right away at the very beginning, we saw last week, we're hit right away by a claim of authority by the Apostle Paul. And that claim of authority doesn't just say, Paul, your brother, at the beginning, because that's not a claim to authority. Some brothers who are older try sometimes to make it a claim of authority. Uh, I'm your older brother. Uh, but generally it doesn't impress younger brothers. So Paul doesn't say from Paul, your brother. He says what? He says, Paul the Apostle. And that is a claim of authority. It's a claim of authority over those who are reading the book, those to whom the book is addressed. It's a claim of authority to the entire church at the time. And it's very important we get fixed in our brain that this is not a loosey-goosey book like Americans uh, where uh, you know we have a, a very, very tenuous relationship to authority. We don't really like authority. Um, and when it comes to the church, we believe we've hit on one of two places where there is no need of authority. And the two places, of course, are the home and the church. As a pastor, I live so much in the, in the church that I often think and meditate on the hypocrisy of Christians who deny that in the home and the church there's proper authority and yet live under it every single moment of their lives outside of the home and the church. And my favorite thing to do is to talk about all of those uh, scholars who teach at Christian Bible colleges and seminaries and, co and, and colleges like Taylor, like Wheaton, like Columbia Bible College, uh, Viola, Westmont, who spend their entire lives writing papers and teaching their students that the wife is not under the authority of the husband and that in the church uh, everybody is just sort of equal and there really shouldn't be any discipline and there shouldn't be elders. And if there are elders and pastors, they should be half men and half women, which is the rule of the PCA. Their constitution requires that. And yet, when it comes to the end of the semester, these people who deny that there should be any authority then ask you to write essays and to submit papers and to answer particular questions. And when you do that, they then grade you. And when they grade you, they sometimes give you a good grade and sometimes a bad grade. In other words, they make a judgment. And when you ask them what gives them the authority to do that, they tell you that they're either an assistant professor or a tenured professor, and furthermore, that they have the terminal degree. 
a doctrine. In other words, they reek of authority as they tell you that there is no authority in the church and the home. And you can apply this all over life today. You can see it in our relationship with policemen. Can you imagine Gilbert Bilizekian saying to a policeman, as the policeman's about to give him a ticket, in Christ there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, policeman or citizen. I mean, it's hilarious. He wouldn't even try to make the case. Even if it was a Christian policeman, even if it was a policeman in Wheaton, he wouldn't think of making the case. And that goes across the board. That goes to walking in a store and, and thinking that you could walk out without having to deal with the authority of the cashier or the manager. That, that, that goes with going to a pharmacy and thinking that you could get drugs, controlled substances, without dealing with the authority of a script and of the pharmacist. It, it goes into paying taxes. It goes into uh, selling your home. It goes into selling your car. Uh, trying to get something into the op-ed pages of the newspaper and expecting to bypass the editor. In other words, every single part of life has authority except the church and the home. Now, this is not me speaking from Scripture. I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in my opponent's minds. And so what they do is they, they argue that in Christ, all this gunk of authority is, is, is just done away with. And isn't that liberating? And then you come to the book of Galatians, the first words of the book of Galatians, make no mistake about it, central to the book of Galatians is an intense fight over the question of authority. And it, and it, and it centralized doctrinally, but also ecclesiastically. We don't just have the question of how we're saved and whether or not we're saved by works or by grace through faith. We also have the question of whether when Paul tells us that, he speaks as an authority of the church. And so Paul doesn't just get into the doctrine and say, never mind me, never mind the, the, the messenger, just look at the message. He starts out by saying, look at the messenger, Paul, an apostle. And one application of this to your lives is, if you've been given a position of authority, uh, do not talk about... Uh, this position of authority uh, being uh, something that, uh, well, actually, you won't talk like that. What you'll do is you'll act like that. Do not act as if you can abdicate this authority without giving an answer to God. Any person that's delegated authority, if they fail to use the authority, they come under God's judgment. Do you understand this? If, say, for instance, a judge in a court decides that he has a cosmic view of murder, and that really murder is a natural process. Now, you might think that's hilarious, but it actually goes on all the time, um, and it will increasingly go on, that murder, uh, as long as it's done sensitively, like with drugs rather than with a gun where there's blood, you know, that, that and if the person's over 70, or maybe 75, you know, that it's okay, it's... it's it's just a natural process. And they go into the court and they begin to let people off the hook who've committed murder as long as it's done with drugs and they're over, their victims are over 70. What's going to happen in this case is that higher authorities are going to come to that judge and they're going to remove that judge from the bench. 
Do you understand that? Because that judge is refusing to exercise the authority that they have had delegated to them by a higher authority. So, when the Apostle Paul wrote the Galatians, if he had not said Paul an apostle, if he had just said Paul a brother, you know, I'd like to share some things with you and see if you agree. Okay? Which is the way we talk. And, you know, I might be wrong, and I know many other Christians have, have a different view of it, but, but, but hear me out. That's not how the Apostle Paul begins. He begins, Paul an apostle. All right? It's a claim of authority. Now, let me ask you a question that's very pertinent today, which is, uh, who is under this authority? John. Adults. Okay. What kind... Dogs are under the authority. <laughs> okay, help me there, John. <laughs> well, um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I could make the case, but it would be it would be kind of twisted. It would have to go back to Jesus talking about how Gentiles are dogs under the table who get the crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who is under the authority? Answer. Elliot, who's under the authority when Paul says he's an apostle? Oh, I assume that Elliot was sitting somewhere next to you, but he's not. Oh. Well, Elliot's father. Now, that's interesting. I, I didn't think he would say that. We are under the authority. That's right. How are we under the authority of Paul the Apostle? Well, we're under the authority because Scripture is God-breathed, and all of it is God's Word to us. So if we submit to God, we submit to His Word, right? But more specifically, can you imagine a time when this letter came to the church and the church looked at it and said, what does this have to do with me? In other words, they didn't know this was Scripture when it came to them. So who was under Paul's authority? The Galatian church. Yes. Now, who was a part of the Galatian church? It's an interesting question. Anybody that happened to show up at the time it was read? What if somebody was homesick the day it was read? Were they not under the authority of the letter? Now, here's my point. My point is you cannot have Paul being an apostle to the church, sent by God to the church, unless you have a church. And you cannot have a church unless there are people who themselves consciously say, that is my authority. Do you understand this? So this is my push to you, that if you think you can just be a disconnected Christian living in Bloomington now and maybe in Denver next year and never be under the authority of a church, you would have been a Galatian Christian who would not have seen yourself as in submission to this apostle because this apostle was not an apostle to the world. He was an apostle to the church. Now, it's true, he took God's message to the world and called the entire world to submit to him. Nevertheless, those who knew that they had an obligation to submit to his office, and it was an office, uh, 
were those who had already submitted themselves to the body of Christ and were known to be members of that body. Because the Apostle Paul writes to the church. He doesn't write to disconnected, individualistic Christians who sit home on Sunday morning and have warm, fuzzy times with the Bible in their prayer closet. No matter how pious they feel doing this, no matter how many good reasons they give to their loved ones about why they refuse to honor the bride of Christ, those people are not under the authority of the Apostle Paul. Do you understand that? Because his authority is the authority of an office. And you cannot have an officer where you don't have an institution that the, that the officer is over. I mean, you know, can you imagine? Kierkegaard talks about wanting to see whether any pastors would quit their job if all their people were taken out of the church. And it's a hilarious point because his point is that pastors are in it for the money and not because they care about sheep. And he says, I bet none of them would quit if we took away the sheep. Well, a pastor without sheep is hilarious. An apostle without souls is hilarious. A church without members is hilarious. But it's something that we're very seduced by as Americans. Because we have a hyper-spiritual view of Christianity where all that matters is just what you feel in your heart. And Paul writes, and he says, Paul, what? An office... And we go, oh, Paul, you know, like, chill out with that authority stuff, you know? I mean, it's so gnarly. And yet we go into a professor's office, and we call them professor, and we honor them, and we allow them to grade us. But we come in the church, we get all cosmic. <laughs> and we go, you know, it's me and Jesus. Now, listen, I tell you, at this point, you're all, because you're postmodernists, you're all personalizing this, because television has Zoom cameras, you know, and they're able to go right in on us, you know, and, and so we never, ever are fearful of anyone anymore. Um, so you're all zooming in on me right now and saying, you know, what did he eat for breakfast? You know, uh, he must have a nasty home and his wife must not be in any way under his authority and his children must be uh, out of control and he must be feeling insecure this morning. Now, maybe those aren't the exact words you're thinking, but you're thinking something is in me that's caused me to, you know, just be a little bit, you know, dyspeptic. You know, sort of, I don't know what the word would be, you know, out of sorts, you know, got up on the wrong side of the bed. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I love my wife. I like her. <laughs> and those don't necessarily go together. And she and I are happy together. Our children are perfectly balanced. They have sins and they have some righteousness and they have their faith in Jesus. Okay? We're a happy home. So that has nothing to do with me. Now, I will admit that there are many twisted aspects to my life. All right? But I'm simply preaching the Word. Okay? I am under the authority of the Word. And the Bible tells me that I'm not to twist it. The Bible tells me I'm to give it to you faithfully, genuinely. The Bible tells me I am not to scratch your ears where they itch. So I'm consciously trying to take those places where your ears clearly don't itch and scratch those places, because that's how you tell whether or not I'm faithful. 
Okay? In other words, yes, it's right for you to come under the Word every single time and think God is big and I am small and I need to submit to Him more. Not because you think it will save you, but because that's the nature of coming under the authority of the Word and those who preach it. So all the talk about Paul and Apostle is not a function of my personality. It is a function of my faithfulness. And there's the chasm, and you've got to stand on one side or the other. Either you believe that all the countercultural talk that comes from the pulpit of this church, no matter who's preaching, because wonder of wonders, all the elders, all the deacons, their wives, everybody all holds to these same things. I just speak in behalf of the whole leadership of this church. You've got to decide whether that countercultural message is the lifeblood of souls who are lost today or whether it is a twisted and marginal and very small and tight and maybe somewhat accurate, but certainly not central truth, whatever it is that you find yourself struggling against, and something that you can just set to the side and talk about Jesus. What Hebrews refers to is all the milk, and yet Hebrews doesn't say it in an approving way. Hebrews says that when we spend all our time on the milk, and this is not to denigrate milk, it's the lifeblood of newborns, all right? But when we spend all our time on milk, the cross, baptism, repentance, that's what it lists, then we are in disobedience to God because we should have been teachers by now and we're still on a milk diet, okay? So I am hitting hard this three words at the beginning of the book of Galatians. I don't want there to be any question on the part of any of us that right at the beginning of the book of Galatians we have an absolutely crystal clear claim of authority by the writer. We have a group of people who are under that authority because it's an office. And this book is written to them as an authoritative act. It doesn't matter how old or young, whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter what culture or race you're from. If you are a Christian today, you also are under the authority of this officer. And this book, this officer is written. Not because you give authority to Scripture in your life, but because Scripture is the very Word of God and God has been pleased not to speak directly from angels to you, except in a few places in Scripture, but to speak through men, sinful men. He's given them offices, and when you come to this church, you are sitting under the apostolic authority of Paul by submitting yourself to the preaching of the Word. So if you don't have a desire to sit under the preaching of the Word, the truth is you would not have sat under the Apostle Paul. The truth is you would have not received the gift of the book of Galatians. Okay? So you can't separate me, this church, this pulpit... This sermon from these first three words of the book of Galatians, Paul and Apostle, they were devoted to the teaching of the Apostles, it says about the New Testament church. Here I am today teaching what the Apostles taught. Either I'm faithful to the text and therefore under their authority or I'm unfaithful. That's the question for you to ask. Paul and Apostle. Paul and Apostle. Authority in the church, not just with the policemen. 
Are you under that authority? Have you consciously, as an act of faith and love for Jesus, submitted yourself to that authority? Or are you just an individualist Christian who has the television programs and the radio and the tapes and all the books by R.C. Sproul or or Max uh, Licato? Thank you. You know, all the, all the, and so you have all this Christian culture, but conveniently, no authority. Very conveniently. Now, let me tell you something. I understand you because I understand myself. Remember, I grew up in the 60s. The reason that I'm really punching you right now is because I'm really punching myself. If you want to talk about the failures of authority, get together with me and we can have a heyday. I'm very good at showing how everybody else is a lousy authority. But my whole life is an act of repentance for this. I don't think it's a principle. I mean, do you get me? I think it's something I need to spend my entire life turning away from because my culture has always got me by the back you know, of the coat and it's yanking on me in the other direction. So I love being a member of the church and under its authority. And I love the fact that the authorities I'm under are sinful men because then I know that the authority is of God and not of them. And I love the fact that there is no perfect father or mother over children. No perfect professor, no perfect president or chancellor, no perfect policeman. Sometimes policemen do nasty things. I know it's hard to believe, but that's why we have judges in court, so they can judge between the policeman and the person they've arrested. Paul, an apostle. All right. (laughs) I can hear you saying, enough already. Okay, I'll get off it. Nobody's laughing. All right. Now, he makes the claim of authority, and I want you to know that this is a constant battle with the churches that he writes to. And I'm going to read just a couple sections so you get a feel for the fact that They recognized this was a statement, a claim of authority, because they kept attacking him, saying he what? Saying he was not an apostle. So even his opponents recognized that if they had to admit he was an apostle, their case was cooked. They were up a creek. He says in Romans 11.13, I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry. But then in 1 Corinthians 15.6-10, we read this. After that, he, speaking of Jesus, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the what? All the apostles And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's interesting, isn't it? 
He's weaving, you know. It's a a trail that you have to look hard to follow. And then in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, all right, Surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And you see this kind of tension all through his letters. Is he or is he not an authority known as the office of apostle in the New Testament? Now, I asked you whether or not you'd recognize the authority of Galatians when it came to you. But the truth is, even if, we didn't want to think about the issue of him calling himself an apostle and think about the church in Galatia at the time. We could jump to today and say, today we know that this is a book of the Bible and that therefore it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's breathed out by God. And therefore, setting aside the issue of his office of authority at the time, today this is God's word to you. This text has authority over you directly from God through this man, the Apostle Paul. Now, geographically, to whom is it written? Well, it's written to the Galatians. And this means that it's written to people who lived in the area where? Well, it's sort of the land bridge. And I've got to think how I'm showing you this. I've got to turn around, okay? But it's the land bridge between Europe and Asia. It's a fairly thin section of land that makes that bridge from Europe over to Asia. And so over in Europe, you've got Greece, you have the Mediterranean Sea going down its side and then under it on the southwest part. All right. And then up on top of it is what? The Black Sea. All right. And there as you go to the east, you'll find Going to the east and then around underneath, you'll find Iran, you'll find Iraq, you'll find other countries. So if you can picture this, it's the bridge, the Black Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, Greece, Iran and Iraq. All right. That's why it figured so prominently as the nation of Turkey in the beginning of the recent war. Because America wanted to use its airspace to do the airstrikes. All right. And so this is the area that we, at that time, knew as Galatia. And you'll find this region and its cities, because it doesn't always refer to Galatia. Often it refers to the cities that are prominent in the area. You'll find this referred to a number of times in Scripture with different uh, cities' names. Um, Turn to Acts 13, please. And there you will see the gospel first being brought into uh, this area of Galatia by the Apostle Paul. Acts 13. And I'm going to skip through the cities and remind us of what happened there. Acts 13, beginning with verse 14, and then going through to chapter 14, verse 23, you'll see the gospel coming to Galatia. There we read, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, Now, there are two Antiochs in Scripture. Pisidian Antioch is up in Galatia. Antioch is down below its southeast corner. All right? And that's important for you to know. Because later in chapter 15, we have the conflict over the church in Antioch. 
It's not Pisidian Antioch, it's Rayerold Antioch. All right? And it says, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, and what did he do? You'll have there recorded a long proclamation of the gospel, preaching of Jesus to the people that are gathered in the synagogue. And so here we have the gospel coming to Galatia. Now, if you skip down to verse 38 of chapter 13, there you'll find this. He ends his sermon saying, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by the way, that Greek word is brethren. And don't fault me for saying brothers and men unless you're going to fault Scripture. Scripture does this to remind us all that Adam was the one that God tested for the whole human race. And so you have this language of using the male marked terms to represent men and women, boys and girls, all through Scripture, reminding us that Adam, and not Adam and Eve, Adam was our federal head, and it's through Adam that God tried us, and through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, both men, both physically, sexually men, all right, that God deals with us. All these use of male marked terms remind us constantly that this is God's pleasure. Therefore, let it be known, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. All right? And then we see, down at verse 43, Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. And then verse 49, The word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, the region of Galatia. And then we see in 51 the appearance of Iconium, another city in Galatia, that region. And then in verse uh, 6 of chapter 14, we see a reference to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, again Galatia. It was in Lystra that the man who was unable to walk lame was healed. And then down at verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And verse 21, that's uh, then in Derby, verse 20, then 21, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And then the section is completed with verse 23, where it says, When they, referring to Paul and his companions, When they had pointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended it to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this is Galatia. All these cities. And then finally they get done preaching the gospel and they appoint elders in every church. So the apostle, you know I'm not going to jump over it, right? The apostle appoints other authorities in the local church. He appoints elders, all right? This is the geographical area. Um, today, what is Galatia like? Well, today, uh, this section is Turkey. And if you know anything about Turkey, you know it's what? It's Islamic. Entirely. There's just a couple hundred thousand souls in a, in a country of about 60 million who have any commitment at all to anything approximating Christianity. There are a number of very exotic kinds of Christianity there. All right? 
If you were to say that uh, Protestantism is an effort to return to the gospel of grace versus the gospel of the law, all right? And you were asked the question of Turkey, how many people in Turkey would consciously identify themselves as Protestants? How many do you think? 60 million. 200,000 Greek and all kinds of different Orthodox and Roman Catholic and, and all the exotic species. How many Protestants? Less than a thousand. In other words, in Turkey today, in the region of Galatia today, a tiny fraction of 1% of the people are uh, what we would approximately say are those who live under the grace of the book of Galatians as opposed to the law. Now, what does this tell us? I'll tell you what it tells us. It tells us that never should we take for granted the perpetuity of the church in any nation, any region, any church. There are many, many, many regions and countries and cities and churches which have had Ichabod written over them. And had you been alive at the time of Paul writing the book of Galatians, I ask you, and I'm going to ask this again and again as we go through this book, would you have thought that anybody should get as intense as he seemed to get over the issue of circumcision? After all, circumcision had a, a wonderful lineage and heritage. After all, circumcision, God had been pleased to use it for centuries and centuries as the marking of his people. And yet Paul seems to be seriously out of sorts. He seems to be really bent out of shape over something that up until that point, every God-fearer had realized was the final act of making themselves one of God's people. As a matter of fact, he gets very out of sorts over the very thing that he required Timothy to do. And so, if you'd been in the church in Galatia, do you think that you would have looked at this letter and thought that it was proportional to the danger? Or do you think that you might have thought that Paul was completely whacked out about it and seemed to have a personal issue? <laughs> or whatever you would use to marginalize it. Remember, there was something at stake. What was at stake? What was at stake was the future of the church. And did the church survive? No, the church did not survive. Okay? So when you have Scripture and its doctrines, doctrines, not its feelings, but its doctrines, all right? When you have Scripture preached to you, there really is danger and there really is a straight and narrow path of safety and it really does matter whether or not you see it and submit to it. Do, do, do you see this? This is not just a time for me to come down and take little babies in my arms and stroke them and make all the women feel good about me or the grandmothers. This is the apostolic tradition the teaching of the apostles being applied to you today, and it really matters. And whether or not there is a church in the United States, in Indiana, in Bloomington, in this building called Church of the Good Shepherd, in the future, will not depend upon how many people are in the parking lot. 
parking before the services start. But how many of those people who come submit themselves to the doctrine of Galatians, learn it, study it, apply themselves to it, and are warned and give themselves to grace and to the blood and the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ for their hope of salvation? And that's a doctrine. Next week, we're going to turn to the question of when Paul wrote this. But at the beginning of this book, we see right away that there's something unbelievably important at stake. And I want to entice you to come every single week, every single time that this book, which is God's message to you, is preached. I want you to come to be here and I want you to believe that this will have a life-freeing impact on you and your descendants for generations to come. I want you to care about your unborn grandchildren, even though you're not married. And I want you to realize that America is not going to be established by our nuclear warheads and F-16s or whatever the, the stealth bombers and B-1s, okay? America is not going to be established by her positive or negative balance of trade or who's president. America will be established by what? The righteousness and truth of God. Righteousness exalts a nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And if we have the Lord as our God, we will suck in everything there is for us in the book of Galatians. All the doctrine, okay, all the truths. And we will repent of ever thinking that we could get into heaven by being good enough. And we will go and we will tell others that message. And that will be continuing the traditions of the apostles. Okay, let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul who was not ashamed of the gospel nor of his office. Father, we pray that we will honor you by honoring those you have put us over us in the Lord.